Our series text comes from Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. The city of Colossae is located in what is now western Turkey in the Lycus Valley, about a hundred miles inland from Ephesus. Laodicea is a few miles to the west, and Heropolis is a few miles to the north, both of which were more important cities in the Roman Empire than Colossae. Paul had never visited the church at Colossae before he wrote this letter, based on Colossians 2 verse 1, which says, For I wish that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Epaphras was apparently the pastor of the church and informed Paul of the conditions that were going on in the church. Colossians chapter 1 verse 7 says, As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. In Colossians chapter 4 verses 12 through 13, Epaphras is described as one of the Colossians. There's a strong possibility that Epaphras was converted to Christianity as a result of Paul's ministry at Ephesus for two years, as mentioned in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And then Philemon, verses 1 and 2, uh, makes it seem that the church met at the home of Philemon. Paul to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to the church in your house. Paul had a company with him while he was writing this epistle in Rome. He was imprisoned at the time of the writing. He was under house arrest, and he had a group of believers around him and was able to receive guests for them to come and to go. Although Paul had never gone to Colossae before writing the epistle, he had learned about the work there through a papyrus who had come from Colossae where apparently, as we said, he served as pastor of the church. Epaphras went to Rome to stay with Paul while Paul was under house arrest, waiting trial by Nero. In Philemon 23, Epaphras is described as a fellow prisoner. However, I would remind you that Paul never considered himself a prisoner of Rome, but a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, attesting that Rome could do nothing that the Lord did not allow. Epaphras came to acquaint Paul with the progress of the gospel in the Lycus Valley and to encourage Paul. But Epaphras also came to find out from Paul how he should handle a very dangerous heresy which had arisen in Colossae and it was threatening the security of the church. That was the false teaching was related to Gnosticism which developed into a full-blown heresy in the 2nd century A.D. While Epaphras was gone from Colossae, it appears that Archippus was in charge of the church, since he's mentioned in Colossians 4.17, where Paul writes, And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Harmonizing that with Philemon 2, where Paul sends greetings to the Colossian church meeting in the home of Philemon, and he mentions Archippus 
our fellow soldier. There's not a shred of evidence that the Pauline apostleship of the whole or any part of this epistle was ever disputed by the church until the liberal attack by German scholars as to Pauline authorityship in the 19th century. This epistle is also inseparably connected to the epistle to Philemon, whose authenticity has been challenged only by the most extreme liberal critics. The reason for the close connection between Colossians and Philemon are, number one, both the epistles of Colossians and Philemon have Timothy's name included along with Paul in the opening greeting. Secondly, Greetings are sent in both letters from Aristarchus, Mark, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas, who were all identified as being with Paul at the time of the writing, based on Colossians 4.10-14 through 14 and Philemon verses 23 and 24. In Philemon verse 2, Archippus is called a fellow soldier, and in Colossians 4.17, Paul tells Archippus, to fulfill his ministry. Fourthly, Onesimus, the slave, concerning whom the letter to Philemon is written, is mentioned in the letter to Colossians, in Colossians 4.9, as being sent with Tychicus and is described as one of you. The place and date of writing is affirmed for us in Colossians chapter 4, verse 7 through 9, We find Paul writing this from Rome during his first imprisonment, and it's carried by Tychicus and Onesimus to the church. Colossians 4, 7-9 says, As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow servant in the Lord, will bring you information, for I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances, and that he may encourage your heart, and with him Onesimus, they'll inform you about the whole situation here. The epistle was written during the latter part of that two-year imprisonment of Paul in the spring of 6289. Gnostic heresy had infiltrated the church. And so Paul warns the Colossians about following false doctrine. A combination of angel worship and asceticism had established itself, according to chapter 2, verse 18. A self-styled philosophy of Gnosticism, which depreciated Christ, was mentioned in, in chapter 2, verse 8. And Paul strongly emphasizes the preeminence of Christ then, in his introduction in chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. A rigid observance of Jewish festivals and Sabbaths had infiltrated the church, according to Colossians 2, 8, 11, 16, and chapter 3, verse 11. Paul seems to refer to one individual as the source of the false doctrines that were being introduced. The false doctrine apparently originated from an Alexandrian Jew who had appeared at Colossae professing a belief in Christianity, but he had a background of Greek philosophy and Gnosticism from the school of Philo, which he 
combined with the rabbinical theosophy and angelology and extreme asceticism to vastly distort the amazing doctrine of grace. So Paul's reason for writing is set forth for us. This threat from false doctrine was so great that Paul sent an urgency to expose it and to deal with it. The two main problems Paul addresses in the letter are, first of all, the person of Christ and the life of the believer after salvation. So these issues will be the main focus of this epistle. Our approach to the study is worthy of note as we begin this series. We'll present an exegetical exposition study of the epistle in which we'll examine what the text actually says, the doctrines it introduces, and the application as it relates to our circumstances today. Let's look then, Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother. It begins then with the word Paul. The Greek is Paulus, and is brought into our English with the word Paul. It's a nominative masculine singular subject from the Roman proper name Paul, and the Roman name for the Jew named Saul. The noun identifies the person, place, or thing here, the Apostle Paul. The nominative case is a case of identification. The masculine gender indicates the person involved is an initiator, and it's singular. The first mention of this name is in Acts chapter 13, verse 9. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, having been filled with the Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and spoke. His Roman name, Paul, was given to him at birth by his father, but because he lived among the Jews, he generally did not use his Roman name, but was called Saul of Tarsus. Saul is the Hebrew for the word Paul. And so both words mean small, but Saul is the name in the Hebrew, and Paul is the name, the Roman name that was given to him. He's identified as an apostle. The identification of an apostle is an important one, for it's from the Greek word apostolos, meaning one having the battle plan and the authority to execute it. It's a noun identifying a title. It is the nominative case, a case of identification. It's the masculine gender identifying that Paul the Apostle is the initiator. And in this Greek grammatical construction, the nominative case here identifies an idea rather than an object, the idea of the apostleship. The emphasis is upon the function, not the title. The construction is frequently used in salutations, and 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 is one of the references to that. But notice also that this is the unauthorous use of the noun. That means there is no article in front of it. The word the 
is not found there, simply apostle. That indicates a very dramatic and forceful stress in Greek with an emphasis upon the characteristics of the position rather than the identification. Paul is emphasizing his authority as an apostle. That is, one having the battle plan and the authority to execute it. We need to look at that word, apostle. It was first developed as the title of an officer in the Greek Navy. The Greeks had had a real problem having any kind of military success on the seas because it would seem that their ship's captains were were selling the battle plan to the enemy. So this position of apostolos was created in order to eliminate that problem. The ship captains were not given the battle plan until they were on board their individual ships. And then the apostolos would take a ship, a skip, and he would go from ship to ship, revealing the plan and sending them out. So they were unable to communicate with the enemy and sell out the battle plan. And suddenly overnight, the Greek Navy became successful. Well, this title came to be used as the head of a Greek band that had set out to establish a new colony. Again, the idea was the one who had the plan and the authority to execute it. The apostles of the church received the plan of God, we call it the gospel and the epistles, by direct revelation, and they had the authority as apostles to execute it. Paul refers to himself then as an apostle. In Galatians chapter 2 verse 8, he writes this, For he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. So Paul states his title, Apostle, to establish his authority over the members of the Colossian church so that the issue would be clear between him and false teachers that had brought in Gnosticism and the false teaching that was sweeping throughout the churches. He is the one that has the battle plan and the authority to execute it, the apostle of Christ Jesus. The Greek says, Christu Iesu. Literally, out from the source of Christ Jesus. Both of the nouns here are genitive ablative, masculine singular proper names. Christ Jesus, meaning from the source of. The noun identifies the person, place, or thing. The genitive or ablative case identifies the description of both source and means. The masculine gender indicates that Christ was the initiator. So the genitive ablative form of the noun indicates to us source and means. Christ Jesus is the source from which Paul had been sent out as an an apostle having the battle plan, and not only having the plan, but having the authority of Christ Jesus to execute it. Now notice we have a reference to Christ as Christ Jesus. 
The word Christ is from the Greek word Christu. It's the word that is translated into English Christ. It's actually the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, meaning sent one, Savior, and it emphasizes His role as our Redeemer. Wherever we see the word Christ in the New Testament, the emphasis is upon His fulfillment of the Messianic promise as He came to be our Savior, our Deliverer. And then coupled with that in the text is the word Jesus. Eesu means Jesus, and it's a reference to His humanity. There's a rule that we can follow systematically that as we find the word Christ, the emphasis is upon His role as Messiah, the Savior, the sent one of God. And wherever we have the word Jesus, it's a reference to His humanity and an emphasis upon that. So oftentimes, we just have the word Christ. And other times, just the word Jesus. And then, of course, there's the word Lord that is associated with it too. And wherever we have Lord Jesus Christ, the word Lord emphasizes His deity, the word Jesus, His humanity, and the word Christ, His role as Messiah. We can document very clearly the emphasis by the use of those terms as we work throughout the New Testament. Paul is the apostle, the one that has been sent with the battle plan, with the authority to execute it, sent out from Christ the Messiah, Jesus the man, to do the will of God. Not only to do the will of God, but Paul identifies it's through the will of God. Dia thamamatos theu. The word through is the a preposition that means through the means of. It's genitive and, and ablative. It emphasizes uh, both that it's through the, the will of God is the source and the will of God is the means through which Jesus Christ sends out Paul as an apostle, the one with the battle plan and the authority to execute it. The will of God is translated from thalamatos in the Greek, and it actually emphasizes the desire, the plan, and the purpose of the one that is emphasized here, and the one emphasized is theu, or God. The noun identifies the person, place, or thing. The genitive ablative identifies description of source and means. It's neuter in gender, which indicates the will of God here is not based on initiation or response, but it's the instrument by which Paul is sent out. So the phrase has the preposition dia plus the genitive ablative of means and source from the neuter singular noun, thelema, and it means will, and the idea of desire, plan, and purpose all incorporated into one meaning. The genitive ablative is used when the expression emphasizes means accompanied along with it an origin of source. So God is the origin. God is the source of the desire, plan, and purpose which made Paul an apostle.
It can be translated either through the willful desire, plan, and purpose of God. Of God. God as, again, it's genitive and ablative, as the source and as the means. And it's masculine, so God is the initiator of the appointment of apostleship to Paul, that being the desire, the plan, and the purpose of God. And then Paul identifies a co-writer along with him. He says, and Timothy. Timothy, the simple conjunction, chi, and connects him with Paul, and the subjective nominative masculine singular proper name Timotheus, which translates into English by the word Timothy. Paul identifies Timothy as with him as he writes. And he gives some description of Timothy, the brother. The brother of me is the literal reading here. The definite article is used as a possessive pronoun, meaning my brother. The word brother, Adelphos, identifies uh, uh, a the use of the masculine, uh, and it's a nominative of exclamation. Both Paul and Timothy initiated the action that made them brothers. Paul initiated the action of receiving Christ as personal Savior. Timothy initiated the action of receiving Christ as personal Savior. And they then became brothers. We have here the article ha, which is used as a possessive pronoun and something that the Koine Greek does, meaning my, and it's used with a nominative of exclamation from the masculine noun Adelphos, meaning brother, the nominative is used without a verb, then it is desired to stress a thought uh, with great distinctiveness. Adelphos is frequently used in the New Testament as a technical term referring to a brother in Christ. So verse 1 of Colossians 1 should read more distinctly this way. Paul, one with the battle plan and the authority to execute it, sent out from the source of Christ Jesus through the instrumentality of the desire, plan, and purpose of God and the brother of me, Timothy. Let me state that again. Paul, one with the battle plan and the authority to execute it, sent out from the source of Christ Jesus through the instrumentality of the desire, plan, and purpose of God and the brother of me, Timothy. So Paul's primary purpose in this first verse is to establish his authority with the believers in and around the area of Colossae. Believers which he had yet to meet not having had the privilege of teaching them yet face to face, he writes this letter. He established his authority in three ways. He reminds those believers that he is, in fact, an apostle. And therefore, he cares more 
spiritual authority than any other believer in the world who is not an apostle. They had some guys coming along peddling some doctrine, so he establishes his authority as the one sent from God with the battle plan and the authority to execute it. Secondly, he reminds them that he too was commissioned by Christ directly as an apostle. Now that's to prevent them from being persuaded by someone claiming to be an emissary from one of the other apostles. His authority as an apostle is directly from Christ and it carries more weight than an emissary from any other apostle. Thirdly, he reminds them that his commission as an apostle of Christ is a direct result of the will of God the Father. So Paul himself had nothing to do with becoming an apostle. He didn't seek the office, nor did he desire to be an apostle. In fact, he did everything possible in order not to become a believer. And even as a believer, God sent the Holy Spirit, permitting Paul to correctly judge himself as the least of all saints and not worthy to be called an apostle he writes to the church at Ephesus, to the church at Corinth, and acknowledges to his brother in Christ, Timothy. He acknowledges the delegated authority of his faithful co-worker along with him, Timothy, who had become a prominent pastor in Western Asia Minor in the next generation, and he was to be the pastor at Ephesus after Paul's death. The application of this is important to us. As believers, we have both temporal and spiritual authorities over us everywhere we go. No one is exempt from being under authority. And therefore, the Bible demands that we become oriented to and that we accept that authority. Any believer who rejects God's delegated authorities rejects God and no one is able to reject God's authority without gracious and fair and yet painful divine discipline. Now while this study is going to be a verse-by-verse exegetical exposition of the epistle to the Colossians, our focus will be on its application and the importance of the message to us today. And therefore, we'll be taking the scenic route that is, we'll be pulling off at various viewpoints along the way. In simpler words, we'll be examining the various doctrines as they're introduced to us in the text, as the text moves along. There are a number of doctrines that are important to our understanding of this verse-by-verse study, and so we'll explore them in process. Now, some of these are introduced in a general way, in this first verse. Most of these we've explored in recent past, so we'll simply note them in passing and address them more specifically when they come up in our study along the route. Several of the doctrines come to mind in this first verse. We must not read or study the Word of God without understanding it is God's mean 
by which he reveals his plan to us. Why we're here and what he intends for us to do. The plan of God is revealed in the Bible in a number of ways. Some basic means of revelation include the doctrine of the angelic conflict, the doctrine of the Mosaic law, the doctrine of the seven annual feasts of Israel, the doctrine of dispensations, and the doctrine of the will of God. We'll look this morning at the doctrine of apostleship. I mentioned earlier the word apostle comes from the Greek word apostolos, meaning one who is sent with the battle plan and has the authority to execute the plan. The word was used of a high-ranking naval officer as we mentioned in Greek times. And the Greeks, as I identified, were having a difficult time with any naval battle victories. It seemed that every time they engaged the enemy, they were defeated. It was discovered that there were traitors in the midst, and uh, while they were drawing up the battle plan, those traitors were present. And so they would sell out the plan to the enemy. I don't know, maybe the Greek Navy's salaries were not sufficient and they could make more money by selling out the plan. Because of that then, the office of Apostolos was established and the Apostle uh, would go from ship to ship with the orders and then send the ships on their way. As I mentioned earlier, they didn't have any way to communicate the plan to the enemy once they were on ship and underway. So the Apostolos had the battle plan and he had the authority to execute it. This title is applied in the Bible then to those who were given the battle plan before the canon of Scripture was completed. They received it by direct revelation and communicated it to the church. They had the authority to execute the plan. In the New Testament, the apostles of Jesus Christ fall into two classes. We have the apostles of Jesus Christ to Israel that are identified in Luke chapter 6. These were appointed by Jesus Christ according to the will of God the Father. They were authorized to announce to Israel that their Messiah had arrived and they were endowed with miraculous powers as is attested to in Luke 9 verses 1 and 2. Now once the canon of Scripture was complete, there was no longer any need for this office and it ceased with the death of the original apostles. The apostles of Jesus Christ to the church included 11 disciples plus Paul, James, the brother of Christ, Barnabas, Timothy, and Silas. All those are clearly identified in Scripture as having the rank, the office, the role of apostle. The positions identified in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 are not spiritual gifts, 
but they require specific spiritual gifts in order to function. God gave the church the position of apostle before the canon of Scripture was completed, along with the position of prophet, which ceased when the canon of Scripture was completed, based on 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13. An apostle of Jesus Christ was the highest ranking official in the local churches, based on 1 Corinthians 12, 28. Apostles of Jesus Christ were appointed by God the Father for the purpose of establishing churches and spreading new truth and establishing sound doctrine, according to Ephesians 3. The qualifications for an apostle are identified in Scripture. The apostle had to have been an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord, according to Acts 1.22 and 1 Corinthians 9.1. Concerning the credentials of an apostle, an apostle was endowed with miraculous powers of miracles, Hebrews 2.4 and 2 Corinthians 2.12. An apostle had success in evangelism, according to 1 Corinthians 9.2, 2 Corinthians 3.13, Galatians 2.7-9. An apostle had the capacity to suffer patiently, according to 2 Corinthians 12.12. The function of an apostle is dealt with in Scripture also. They received and communicated new revelation from God, according to Ephesians 3, 2 through 6. Apostles communicated the gospel effectively, and people accepted Christ in response to their preaching, according to 1 Corinthians 9, 1, Galatians 2, 7 through 9. Apostles helped organize local churches and appointed officers in those churches, according to Acts 14 and Titus chapter 1. Apostles trained new believers in doctrine, according to 1 Thessalonians 1, 5 through till chapter 2, verse 12. Apostles had the authority to administer discipline to the believers, based on Acts 5, 1 and 10, 1 Timothy 1, 20, 1 Corinthians 4, 21, and 2 Corinthians 13, 2. The apostles had authority over all the local churches because he was the channel for the new revelation, the New Testament, as it was coming from God. The position of apostle ceased once the church was completed as it became the author, the Bible then became uh, canonized and became the authority for doctrine. We no longer have new revelation being given. The Bible's completion brought about then the end of the office, and with the death of the Apostle John, that office ceased. The Apostle Paul states, that he was the least observing or deserving of any of the apostles, according to 1 Corinthians 15.9. And yet in many ways, 
He was the most productive because of the amazing grace of God. 1 Corinthians 15.10 There were false apostles who communicated false information according to 2 Corinthians 11.13 and Revelation chapter 2, verse 2. Well, let's look then at some concluding applicational principles. First of all, God has a plan for you. He has a plan for each one of us. He has a plan for His church, and you are a part of it. Don't claim Jeremiah's promise that's identified in Jeremiah 29.11. You have your own gifting. You have your own design. 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 spell out the various roles that are assigned to you and to me as believers to carry out God's plan. He has a plan and you're part of it. Secondly, God has revealed to us His plan through His Word. Holy men wrote as they were moved by the Spirit of God according to Second Peter 1 verse 21. The Word of God is declared to be alive and to be a critic of our thoughts and intents, according to Hebrews 4.12. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, according to Romans 10.17. So the epistles of Colossians has principles for church-age believers. It contains principles that are ongoing throughout the church age and relate to you and to me. Here in our series, we'll learn the battle and what our role is in it and how we can respond in a positive way to it. 2 Timothy 2.15 challenges us, study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. If you're patient with the academics, you'll be rewarded with the inspiration and the information to conform with God's purpose for your life so you can live out your design position in the plan of God. I'll attempt to present the inspiration of this epistle as well as the information that's contained in it. It will be academic. After all, we're studying a letter written by an apostle, written to the church, written to establish doctrine and practice. But those academics are designed to inspire and motivate us to effective and correct spiritual service. So don't drown in the academics. Take them in stride in order to understand the inspirational message that's contained within. I would encourage you to review the material in this study. And uh, we'll be examining uh, uh, some of these things further as we move into the epistle. Remember, It's addressed and relevant to you and I as well 
as to the Colossians. But of course, it all begins at salvation. For the Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says, With the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God bless.